Well, this morning we're going to spend just a little bit of time talking about the second being of the Godhead. So I thought it would be appropriate this morning that we open from Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 uh, as we looked at a prophecy foretelling of the coming of Christ. Uh, wasn't quite sure what I was going to speak on, but this week I uh, had a very brief conversation revolving around the second being of the Godhead. Uh, the person that I was speaking to told me that they knew someone who had an unusual belief, uh, and I wrote down exactly what it was so I, I could get it accurate. Here's what this person believed. He said the person believed that every time God comes to earth, He is in the form of Jesus, including the interactions with Adam and Eve and Moses. And the reasoning behind that was based on the passage that uh, nobody has ever seen God. Now. I had to kind of think about that one for a little bit. There's, first of all, a number of issues with the statement uh, at hand, and all. there's also a number of other specifics that he would need to go back and to define regarding each of these individual situations. But as I began to think a little bit about this, I think part of the, part of the reason he has an issue with this, or his, part of his misbelief, is really based on a misunderstanding of the difference between the Lagos, or the Word, and Jesus incarnate, um, or the second member of the Godhead actually taking upon Him human form as the Messiah. And if, as you begin to go back and look through the Old Testament, very clearly Jesus is, Jesus is never present in the Old Testament. However, with that being said, the Lagos is declared as being present. And there are even other verses that would allude to the possibility that the second member of the Godhead was possibly active in other events in the Old Testament. Now, that's an entirely different sermon. And the reason I wouldn't probably preach that, it would be a good Bible study, but I wouldn't probably speak on that, is because that would be a sermon full of opinions, speculation, and possibly even other questions that I myself would have and cannot answer. Now, I'm not going to go into any more detail than that, but here's the point. He has an unusual belief that every time there was an interaction on earth, uh, like, for example, Moses, burning bush, Adam and Eve, all of that, this guy believes that every time that occurred, it was actually Jesus who was involved in that. Now, again, probably not any more unusual than some of the other stuff I've heard. Uh, and there are a lot of people that have different perspectives when they begin to talk about the nature of Jesus. We've probably had conversations. Some say, well, he was a good man. Uh, some would say, well, he was a prophet. Others believe that he actually was God who was in the flesh. And then you have some, and I think this gentleman may even have been influenced by that regarding his belief. You have some who believe that Jesus is actually another manifestation of the first member of the Godhead. Now, you guys probably don't know what I'm talking about, but you will as soon as I repeat to you. How many of you guys, just by nodding your head, are familiar with the oneness Pentecostal belief? I'm wondering if that's maybe not the issue going on with this gentleman. What is the oneness Pentecostal belief? For anyone who's here who maybe doesn't know, we've spoke about it before numerous times, but for those watching, oneness Pentecostalism is a non-Trinitarian Protestant religious group. They specifically believe that there is one God, they believe He is a singular divine spirit. He manifests Himself in many ways. Sometimes He manifests Himself as God. Sometimes He manifests Himself as Christ. And sometimes He manifests Himself as the Holy Spirit. However, they reject three individual beings of the Godhead. Now, 
That almost sounds a little bit like this, what this guy believed, right? He said he believes that every time there was an interaction on earth, it was always Jesus. I'm wondering if maybe this gentleman wasn't influenced by the oneness Pentecostal belief. Sometimes God is God, sometimes He's Christ, sometimes He's the Holy Spirit, but there's not three individual beings. There's just one God who takes upon Him those forms. However, when you begin to go back and study the second being of the Godhead, the Bible teaches very clearly that uh, there, are, there are three distinct members of the Godhead. And each member of the Godhead exists at all times and simultaneously with each of those other members of the Godhead. Now, we can begin to get a little bit of information on this as we go over to John chapter 1. Now, we've, we've preached through John uh, chapter 1 a couple of times, but we're going to look at it a little bit different as I'm going to come back and just give you some information about the second member of the Godhead. Because there's a lot of information we can get from John chapter 1 and, and, and other verses, but let's start off with our very first point as we talk about the second member of the Godhead. And, and this is what I'm going to say as we begin to figure out who the second member of the Godhead is. What's his nature? First off, the Lagos was eternal. Now, I want you to notice something really important here. As we begin to talk about the second member of the Godhead, you are going to notice that I'm very clearly and distinctly going to distinguish between the Lagos, or the Word, and Jesus. Now, you'll begin to... Some people do not do that, right? They look at the idea of Jesus... Uh, at the beginning of time, creation, you look at passages in the New Testament, they think, what's well, Jesus? We have to break this down a little bit, because if we do not, then you get mis misunderstanding. Like, for example, this gentleman who thinks Jesus was back in the book of Genesis. The Lagos was eternal. Let's go to John 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning was the Word, that Greek word there is Lagos, and the Word, the Lagos, was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. Now, it's interesting here in John, he starts off with this, in the beginning was the Word. Genesis starts off with very similar language. Now, the point is, is he is simply making an affirmative statement that is without dispute. It's basically the equivalent of saying, starting out, 2 plus 2 equals 4. That is without dispute. He is simply stating a fact. And that's what we have starting out the very beginning of the book of John. He basically says, in the beginning was the Lagos, or the Word. Now, we're going to get more information about that. But John opens up the book with the beginning, and he begins to look back into eternity, and he sees the pre-existence of Christ. So he goes back, and we are talking about the second member of the Godhead, but we are not talking about Christ he makes a distinction here. We are talking about the Lagos. There is no doubt, according to scriptures, that the second member of the Godhead has always existed. But the second member of the Godhead has not always been Christ, as is taught by some. Prior to being born uh, as the incarnate Jesus, he was the Lagos. Okay? And there was never a time when the second member of the Godhead was not. As a matter of fact, when we go back and even look at Jesus' own words, Jesus refers back to His existence as the Lagos prior to Him being born in the fashion of a man. And when He does this, I'm going to go on over to John 8, 58. He literally equates Himself as being deity with God the Father. Now, John 1, 1 is actually going to 
uh, John 1, 1 through 3, actually John 1, 1, is going to teach the exact same thing here. But notice in John 8, 58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now that goes back, many of you guys all know exactly what that goes back to. That goes back when, when Moses says, who do I tell him sent me? And he said, tell him I am. Right? What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is referring to his pre-incarnate form. He's referring to when he was the Lagos. And they understood, he's, he's saying I'm deity. And they clearly understood this because in John 8, 59, they literally picked up stones to try to kill him. They knew exactly what he was saying. The second member of the Godhead was not always in the form of the Lagos because he took upon him flesh to dwell with man. So there was a time when he had a different role. We'll break that down a little bit, I guess. There was a time when he was the second member of the Godhead in the form of the Lagos, and there was things that he did, but there was also a, another role he would take upon him, which was to take flesh upon him as a man to live on earth. And so you have the second member of the Godhead with two different roles at two different times. Now, if you begin to get that confused, or if nobody's ever spoken on that or taught you about that, it would be very easily, easy to look at your scriptures where it talks about the second member of the Godhead and automatically think that Jesus is back in the book of Genesis. The second member of the Godhead is back in Genesis, but he was not Jesus. Notice Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now I'm going to go back to John for just a minute before I touch here on uh, Philippians chapter 2, but John declares that the second member of the Godhead was initially referred to as the Word or the Lagos. And it's very significant that it is by the Word that revelation is made known unto man. It's interesting that this came up totally after last week's Bible study. You'll remember I spent some time talking about how the medium for the giving of information is always through the Word. Well, that's really what we find here. And in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, which I just read, the second member of the Godhead took upon him the form of a man in order to reveal, this is through knowledge, the Heavenly Father, His will for man, and then also to finally shed His blood uh, for mankind. Guys, there was a change in role when He took upon Him this form of man. Now, some do see that change in form of man, and some then go and teach, well, the, the Jesus in human form was less than the second, when He was the second member in human form, was less than the second member of the Godhead who was not in human form. They seem to think that because Jesus became man on earth, He somehow lessened His role as the second member of the Godhead. Both were the second member of the Godhead, uh, but they varied in role. Jesus was still fully God while He was on earth. Now, it is very hard for us to sometimes wrap our hand around the fact that, God, that Jesus was fully God, and yet He was fully man. Listen to Colossians 2.9. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He was fully God, and yet He was in the form of a man, 
He had blood running through his veins. And guys, that's important. We'll touch on that in just a minute. Let me slide on down here to Hebrews chapter 1. We get a little more information. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto us, unto, unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That word express image is, is the uh, identical Basically, it means a stamping or engraving. You guys know how they have a, like a die for a penny? They have the exact image that comes down and hits and gives the duplicate image? That's what this word here, express image, means. <clears throat> and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. We're going to talk about how important this passage is here. He, he declares a number of things in the book of, of Hebrews here, but he, here in this passage, he declares the two different forms of the second member of the Godhead. We know that he existed as the Lagos when he created the worlds. We also know that he existed in the form of Christ so that he could purge man's sins through his blood, through his physical blood. And so you can see the reason why he took upon man <clears throat> But at this whole point, he's still part of the Godhead. I'm going to go to John 14, 9. I was looking for my coffee that's sitting at my desk or my chair. I'm going to go on over to John 14, 9. Jesus saith unto him, this is an interesting question to Philip here. Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me hath seen the Father, and how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Now, I could see how somebody would misteach this and think that sometimes God is God and sometimes God is Jesus and sometimes God is the Holy Spirit. Jesus isn't saying He was the Father. Jesus wasn't the Father and Jesus wasn't the Holy Spirit. And yet, the members of the Godhead all have the same holy nature, the same attributes, and they were all in alignment with the will for righteousness. Now, let's go back to John 1.1 because we then have this phrase, The Word was with God. This totally denies the teaching of the oneness Pentecostals who teach that God is God and sometimes God is Christ and sometimes God is the Holy Spirit. And I'm thinking maybe that's partially what this individual has an issue with. Well, we can go here to John 1.1 1, 1 and notice the Word was with God. Jesus and the Father are two distinct beings, very clearly. Now this also refutes the teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses that teach that God created Christ. That's not, a, that's not at all what we're finding here in John chapter 1. This is simply a declarative statement that in the beginning the Word, or the Logos, was with God. In the very beginning. Now when was that? Well, for many they struggle with that, but we have to remember the eternal nature of God. God is eternal. And as God is eternal, also with Him was the Logos. Again, He is also eternal. And so what I would say is, as God is from eternity, the Logos was with Him throughout all of that, therefore the Logos is eternal. But He's not eternally the Logos because eventually He was going to take upon Him the form of man. And yet many today, when they begin to talk about the second member of the Godhead, begin to get confused on Jesus and the Logos, two different roles, right? 
Not, he had not taken upon him the form of man. He did take upon him the form of man. Still the second member of the Godhead, but two totally different roles. Okay? Let's go back and look at the very first, the Lagos as the Creator. John 1.3 All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Alright, let's point something out here. The Lagos was the Creator, just as we saw in the Old Testament there in Genesis chapter 1. And, but with that being stated, this is not Jesus. This is the Lagos. This is the Word. Jesus has not been born yet. So we are referring specifically to the second member of the Godhead known as the Lagos or the Word. This also refutes the Jehovah's Witness teaching that Christ or the Lagos was created by God. Uh, he was from the very beginning and He created all things. He was eternal, but all things that were created were created by Him. And the Jehovah's Witness says, well, that's true after God created Him. Say, no, nope, read it again. He was eternal and He created everything. So Jehovah's Witness teaching that he is, Jesus was a created being by God totally does not line up with our scriptures. He created everything. Let's go on over to Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 15 through 18, and I'm going to point some, something out where I think some people get confused here. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. It says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? Now let me pause for a minute. The Jehovah's Witness right there would say, see, gotcha. He was the firstborn of every creature. God created him. He was the first one born. That's not what that is teaching. That is not saying God created him. If they would actually just read down to verse 18, they would see the same phrase being repeated, and it declares what it actually means. Okay? Let's keep reading. <clears throat> so this is not saying Jesus was born. We've already shown from John 1.1 that God was eternal and the Lagos was with him. Okay? who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things, when it says all, it means all, guys. All things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things. He's the preeminent one. And by Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church. Now notice this. See that phrase again who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. It's talking about the resurrection. He was the first one to be resurrected and go to heaven. And then he goes on, that in all things he might have the preeminence. He was the Messiah, the Redeemer, the very first one, born, reborn or born again from the dead, the one who was resurrected and went to heaven. That idea there that he was the firstborn of every creature, that the Jehovah's Witness teach, and they say he was... He was created by God. No, if you continue to read, it shows he's the firstborn from the dead. It's referring directly to the resurrection. Guys, he spoke things into existence as the Lagos. And he upheld everything by his word. Hebrews 1.3, "...who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins..." sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The Lagos was eternal, and the Lagos was the creator of everything. I don't have time to go back, but we've mentioned this before. God was the architect. Christ carried out the plan, or the Lagos carried out the plan, and the Holy Spirit brought order to chaos. That's what we find in Genesis 1. God was the architect. 
The Lagos was the one carrying out the plan of creation, and the Holy Spirit brought organization. It's the very same thing we find within the New Testament. God was the creator of the plan. We knew from the very beginning a Messiah was coming. He was the one that carried out the plan, and the Holy Spirit brought order to all of that through the inspired Word. Okay? So, very clearly, the Lagos was eternal. The Lagos was the creator of everything. Now, let's talk a little bit about Jesus being the light. Why do I say that? Well, originally he were talking about the Lagos, but there was a point at which he became man. And as a man, we refer to him as Jesus. He was our Messiah. He was our Redeemer. Now we can go to John 1, verses 4 through 5. John covers a lot. He packs a ton into really these first few verses of the first chapter of John. And he tells us about Jesus. This is the Lagos, who has now become man. He says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. One of the things we have to understand as we begin to get some understanding of not only the Lagos, the Creator, but also Jesus, is that all life only comes through the second member of the Godhead. That includes both spiritual and physical life. Physical life was created by the Lagos. Spiritual life today is only possible through Jesus. Now, we know from science, and we can go back, they have clearly disproven the theory of spontaneous generation. That's the idea that nothing comes from nothing, and that is true both physically and spiritually. Uh, and the second member of the Godhead became man. He lived as Jesus, the Messiah, the light, so that He could point us towards eternal life through His sacrifice. That's really, in a nutshell, how to describe uh, the, the mission of Jesus. Listen to John 14, 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, guys, I'm going to tell you right now, that is not what the majority of our culture thinks. Uh, but that's biblical. <laughs> it's just straight up book, chapter, verse. Listen to John 10, 10. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy... I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. So, the Lagos became man for the purpose of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Remember I told you earlier, I said he had physical blood running through his veins. Well, that physical blood would be shed, and we'll, we'll touch on that. But prior to that taking place, Jesus, who was the Lagos, who took upon him human form, was the light of the world. Listen to John 8, 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, guys, we know this and we've covered before, but light clearly represents truth and morality. Darkness represents lies and all different forms of evil. And the problem is, is unfortunately, there are some who they simply prefer the dark over the light. John 3, 21, But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Now, it's very clear to us that Christ is no longer with us, and yet when the gospel is preached, that light continues to be revealed over and over and over again. I'm going to go over to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. We'll look at the words of Paul here. He says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts. But remember, the heart is the Bible mind. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Now, it's interesting. Luke actually writes this. I'm going to go over to Acts 26, 18. It says, To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Now, it's interesting. We've already pointed out that the Lagos became man. And I talked about the fact that he was a physical man with physical blood running through his veins. And here we learn in Acts 26, 18, there's a purpose behind all of that, and that's for the forgiveness of sins through him. Now, we're going to touch on how that actually takes place. But before we get to that point, we have to notice this. He's the light. He is the life. He is literally walking amongst men, and yet he is clearly rejected by his own. Let's go on over to John 1.11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. You know, I often wonder to myself, if I was a Jew at the time, would I have, would I have rejected outright Jesus as the prophesied Messiah? Would I have rejected outright the one who became man to offer, a, to offer remission of sins and salvation through his blood? I don't know the answer to that, but I often wonder. And the reason I wonder that is, is because these Jews literally knew the prophecy, and yet they still rejected him. I'm going to go on over to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read verses 3 through 6. It says, When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled. Why? <laughs> You're going to find out. But he knew. He knew the prophecies. And notice this. It wasn't just him. And all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered, now here's how you're going to know that he knew the prophecies. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Let me pause. He knew the prophecies. He, had, he didn't have an excuse. Verse 5, And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Now, Herod certainly didn't fully have an understanding, and he, he should have. Uh, he's more worried about the political reign than he was the spiritual reign of our Lord and Savior, the Messiah. Uh, but the Jews all knew the prophecies. We've talked about this in a number of regards. And Jesus literally was the light among them. He was rejected by them, even though he was doing miracles in their midst. And guys, these miracles were confirmation of not only the prophecies, but even his own claims. We already saw one where he literally claimed uh, that he was. He said, I am. Before him, I am. He was saying, I am God. And listen to what Peter says on the day of Pentecost. I'm going to go over to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. And you guys have to remember, for anybody watching this who's maybe not very familiar with the Bible, this is after Peter has just stood up and said, basically, he was the Messiah. We knew he was the Messiah. And guess what? You killed him. Okay? He makes it very clear here during that sermon, Acts 2.22, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. There were eyewitnesses that literally saw Jesus doing the miraculous. And he says, you know this, and the fact that they, know, they knew it should have shown them that, yes, indeed, he was the Messiah. He was the prophesied one who was coming. Okay? 
At one point, he was the Lagos, but he took upon him the form of man as was prophesied, and now he is the Redeemer, literally, who was walking among them. And Peter says, guess what? You killed him. We'll touch on that here in a little bit uh, right before we get done. John says this in John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Now here's what's interesting. I pointed out that Jesus was the light, and yet so many rejected him. Well, guys, I'm going to go on over to Matthew chapter 22. It's very similar to today. There are people who are constantly trying to discredit our inspired scriptures. There are people who try to discredit Jesus. Uh, they say he's a fraud, and they say all kinds of things about him to try to discredit him. Because why, guys? Well, if Jesus was a fraud, that means the scriptures aren't real. And if the scriptures aren't real, there's no standard of morality. And if there's no standard of morality, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. Well, that's atheism, basically, isn't it? Well, let's notice an example. I'm going to give you two examples of people trying to discredit him. Matthew chapter 22, 15 through 17. Then went the Pharisees, and they took, camp, they took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. I'm trying to trip him up. You ever had someone do that to you? It says, verse 16, And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God. And you ever notice it's always really good to build somebody up and make them feel good about themselves before you try to trick them in their words. He says, And teachest the way of God in truth, neither carest thou for any man. For thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Guys, here's the thing. These guys were not interested at all in God's will as related to government. We learn very quickly as we, re we read this, they're trying to entangle him in his talk. Why? Well, they want to divide the followers that were comprised of the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and even those Jews who would claim no affiliation with any of those groups. But if you can get Jesus to now answer this question as far as how we relate to the government, we can divide his followers. They're simply trying to compromise Jesus. They're trying to discredit him. Let me give you another example. Matthew 19. You guys are all familiar with Matthew chapter 19. We'll read verses 1 through 3. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coasts of Judea beyond Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for man to put away his wife for every cause? <laughs> these guys are not interested in God's will regarding marriage and divorce. That's not at all what their intent is. They simply are trying to divide his followers between really the two primary schools of thought uh, or teachings by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So again, they're simply trying to discredit him. And not only did they try to discredit him, which people are still doing today, we have to take it to another extreme. It wasn't enough to try and discredit him. But guys, they actually decided when it, when it got to the point where they couldn't do any more, they said, we're just going to have to kill him. We're just going to have to kill him. And we've talked about this before. Lazarus is the turning point. Lazarus literally is the turning point. Once he raises Lazarus from the dead, the Jews, 
They have no choice. Here, here's the thing. How do you stop the miracles which are proving that He's the Messiah? How do you stop people from talking about the fact that He is the Messiah and it's confirmed through all the miraculous that He's doing, right? You couldn't. So what do you got to do? You got to kill Him. That's, that's a logical step, right? Doesn't that happen today, right? I can't deal with this guy anymore. What do I do? Got to kill him. Same mindset. Let's go on over to John chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 47 through 51. And you're going to see this is the mindset they get after he's raised Lazarus from the dead. Then gathered, John 11, verse 47. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we do? What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. And if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. Let me pause for a minute. What are they saying? We're going to lose our spots of authority. We've got to do something. We can't stop him. He's literally going around and he's raising people from the dead. Everybody's talking about it. So what's the logical conclusion? I guess one of the logical conclusions would be, he's the Messiah. I should be a follower. But no, that's not what they chose. Guess what we got to do? we got to kill him. Verse 49. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. Let me pause. What's he saying? We're going to have to kill him. We're just going to have to kill him. Verse 51. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. All right, what have we learned so far about the second member of the Godhead? The second member of the Godhead is eternal. The second member of the Godhead was the creator of everything. The second member of the Godhead took upon him the form of man and was the light and the life literally walking throughout his ministry. And then we see he was rejected by his own, and it gets to the point where they finally are going to kill him. So that gets me really to the last point we're going to touch on today as we talk about the second member of the Godhead. Yet at this point, he's in the form of Jesus, the Messiah, the Redeemer, and he's going to shed his blood for mankind. Now, I thought about how to go back and look at this, and I could have... You're going to be a little bit on the short side. I literally could have given you 40 verses tied all together to talk about the blood and the necessity of the blood. And don't get me wrong, most people today do not see the importance of the blood. And I think that's because the majority of the world around us has, has been mistaught faith-only salvation. And really what they've been taught is, is because of the blood of Jesus, you only need faith. And yet, that's not what we find when we begin to look at the Scriptures. I'm going to go over to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6-7. Romans 1, verses 6-7. To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Guys, there are an awful lot of teachings regarding salvation. Uh, if you go back, let's just mention a few of them. Atheism. Atheism would say you don't need any saving. How about agnosticism? Well, they're not quite sure if God exists or not, so they're not even sure if you need saving or you don't need saving. They're not saying you do, and they're not saying you don't, because they're just not quite sure at all. And then you have a number of different religious groups, all teaching different things pertaining to salvation. Many of them even teaching faith only or being saved really because of His shed blood, 
but you have nothing to do with that shed blood. Well, I would challenge you to show me anywhere within our holy inspired scriptures where God declares that the sinner can contact the cleansing blood of Christ in any other manner other than what is indicated. Now I'm going to go on over to Romans 6, 3 through 4. Most of you are familiar with this passage. How do we contact the blood? Yeah, we are saved through His blood. How do I contact it? I have to contact it. Romans 6, 3 and 4. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. And therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now let me ask you a logical question. Where was His blood shed? I think we all know the answer to that. His blood was shed in His death. So then here's the next question. How exactly may the blood be contacted? Well, our inscriptions are pretty clear and show us that we contact the blood of Jesus by being baptized into His death. Again, Romans 6, verses 3 through 4. It is vital that we obey the inspired scriptures. If you want to call it a divine ordinance or you just want to call it a command, either way, of baptism, because it's in the act of baptism that we actually apply the cleansing blood of Christ. We could look at a number of passages like Galatians 3, 26 and 27, which show that's, shows that baptism is how we get into Christ, or 1 Peter 3, 21, that shows that baptism saves. But guys, baptism is it's where the remission of sins takes place. Now, we already started to touch on Acts chapter 2 earlier, where Peter is preaching, and he basically says, he confirmed to you he was the Messiah. You all knew it, and guess what? You killed him. And, and he's very clear about it, and they get it. I'm going to go to Acts 2, verse 37, because notice their response. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? I'd probably be asking the exact same question. Notice he doesn't say... You don't need to do anything. Jesus already shed His blood. All you got to do is believe and you're good. That's not what our apostle says by inspiration. Verse 38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Why am I doing this? For or in order to receive. That's what the word there, ace, means in Greek. For the remission of sins. You're going to do this so your sins can be remitted. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's telling them literally in the crowd right then and there. Everybody has to understand when you begin to talk about the shed blood of Jesus that it's through the atonement of Jesus' blood, through obedience to the gospel, that one is crucified with Christ and they become this new creation. We've talked about that before. You go down in the water, the old man, and the old man is killed off, but the new man raises, like Christ raised, the new man raises up this new creation. Why? Because a Christ-like person, I'm talking about somebody who has obeyed the gospel and is living as taught and exemplified by Jesus Christ, is freed from the guilt of sin. Why? Well, we've already shown that baptism is where the remission of sins takes place. And if there are sins in our life that are not repented of, then those sins are unforgiven. And if we walk around with sins which are unforgiven, Guess what follows? Guilt. Guilt is what follows. Freedom from sin only belongs to the faithful that have received atonement by the blood of Jesus Christ, which gives the remission of sins. We access that blood through, through baptism. 
And then we continue to contact that blood through repenting and walking in the light again. 1 John 1, verses 7 through 9. Guys, your sins cannot be forgiven unless you obey the gospel from the heart. And that means obeying the exact form of the gospel as declared throughout our scriptures. So what can we really know about the second member of the Godhead? I know it's a little bit on the short side today. Well, he was originally described as the Word, the Lagos. He was eternal. He was the creator of everything. But as part of the plan of redemption, which was known from the very beginning of time, the Lagos took upon him the form of a man with literal blood running through his veins in order, because he was without sin, in order that he could shed his sinless blood as the perfect Lamb of God so that all men would have the opportunity to be saved. Seems pretty simple to me. He was the Lagos. He was eternal. He created it all. He took upon him the form of man and he walked upon us uh, as the light and the life of men. But they rejected him. And even in spite of that, as was known from the very beginning, Genesis 3.15, he shed his blood on the cross so that everyone would have an opportunity to be saved. Guys, here's the most important question regarding the second member of the Godhead. What are you going to do with this information now? Are you going to acknowledge His true nature, and are you going to be faithful to the Word? Simply obey the gospel and become faithful. I hope that gives you a little bit more information about the second being of the Godhead. I hope it clears up some corrections for some of those maybe that are watching this online who have some unusual beliefs about Jesus. Our concern would be this. Do you fully have an understanding about Jesus and why He shed His blood, and are you ready to contact the blood? The only way to do that is by obeying the gospel. It's not complicated. Somebody uh, was simply in, in, the old, in the New Testament going around teaching who Jesus was and why He came and about the establishment of the church. And people believed it, Hebrews 11:6. They repented of their sins, Luke 13, 3 and 5. They confessed Christ, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And they were immersed in water for the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. Jesus commands it over in Mark 16, 15 and 16. And there's a number of other passages. That's how simple it is to become a Christian. If you haven't done that, we would urge you to question us and let us study with you, whether it's online, telephone. Uh, if you want us to help you find somewhere local, we can. Uh, if you're watching this and you're not a Christian, please contact us. Let us study with you. If you are a Christian, ask yourself, am I living worthy of the blood of Christ? If there's a way we can help you in any way, you can come forward as we're led in a song of invitation.